Section 11 of In Times Like These by Nellie McClung. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 As a Man Thinketh. When the valley is brimming with sunshine, and the sewer is limpid and clear, slips over its shining pebbles, and the harvest time draws near, the heart of the honest plowman is filled with content and cheer. It is only the poor rich farmer, whose heart is heavy with dread, when over the smiling valley the mantle of harvest is spread. For the season, he says, is backward, and the grain is only in head. The hired man loves the twilight when the purple hills grow dim, and he smiles at the glittering blackbirds which round him circle and skim. His road is embroidered with sunflowers that lazily nod at him. But the rich man's heart is heavy, with gloom and fear oppressed, for he knows the red-winged blackbird as an evil-minded pest, and the golden-brown-eyed sunflower is only a weed at best. When the purple rain-clouds gather and a mist comes over the hills, a peace beyond all telling the hired man's bosom fills, and the long, long sleep in the morning his heart with rapture fills. But the rich man's heart is heavy with gloom and fear of loss, when the purple clouds drop moisture on field and flower and moss. It's all very well for the plowman, but it's not well at all for the boss. When the moonlight lies on the valley and into the hayloft streams, where the humble laborer snoreth and dreameth his peaceful dreams, it silvers his slumbering fancies with the witchery of its beams. But the poor rich man is restless, for his heart is on his sheaves, and the moonlight cold and cloudless for him no fancy weaves for the glass is falling, falling, and the grain will surely freeze. So the poor rich farmer misses what makes this old world sweet, and the weather grieves the heart of him with too much rain or heat, for there's nothing gold that can't be sold, and there's nothing good but wheat. There is no class of people who have suffered so much from wrong thinking as the farmer. Vicarious wrong thinking, I mean. Other people have done the wrong thinking, and the farmer has suffered. Like many another bromide, the thought has grown on people that farmers are slow, uncouth, guileless, easily imposed on, ready to sign a promissory note for any smooth-tongued stranger who comes in for dinner. The stage and the colored supplements have spread this impression of the farmer, and the farmer has not cared. He felt he could stand it. Perhaps the women on the farm feel it more than the men, for women are more sensitive about such things. Poor girl, say the kind friends. She went west and married a farmer. And forthwith a picture of the farmer's wife rises up before their eyes, the poor faded woman, in a rusty black luster skirt, sagging in the back and puckering in the seams, coat that belonged to a suit in other days, a black sailor hat, gray with years and dust, 
with a sad cluster of faded violets and torn tulle trimming sitting crooked on her head, hair the color of last year's grass and teeth gone in front. There is no reason for the belief that farmers' wives as a class look and dress like this, only that people love to generalize. To fit cases to their theory, they love to find ministers' sons wild, mothers-in-law disagreeable, women who believe in suffrage neglecting their children, and farmers' wives shabby, discouraged, and sad. I do not believe that farmers' wives are a downtrodden class of women. They have their troubles like other people. It rains in threshing time and the thresher's visit is prolonged until long after their welcome has been worn to a frazzle. Father won't dress up even when company is coming. Father also has a mania for buying land instead of building a new house, and sometimes works the driving horse. Cows break out of pastures, hawks get the chickens, hens lay away, clotheslines break. They have their troubles, but there are compensations. Their houses may be small, but there is plenty of room outside. They may not have much spending money, but the rent is always paid. They are saved from the many disagreeable things that are incident to city life, and they have great opportunity for developing their resources. When the city woman wants a shelf put up, she phones to the city relief and gets a man to do it for her. The farmer's wife hunts up the hammer and a soapbox and puts up her own shelf, and gains the independence of character which only come from achievement. Similarly, the children of the country neighborhoods have had to make their own fun, which they do with great enthusiasm, for, under any circumstances, children will play. The city children pay for their amusement. They pay their nickel and sit back apparently saying, Now, amuse me if you can. What are you paid for? The blasé city child who comes sighing out of picture shows is a sad sight. They know everything, and their little souls are aweary of this world. It is a cold day for any child who has nothing left to wonder at. The desire to play is surely a great stroke of providence, and one of which the world has only recently begun to learn. Take the matter of picnics. I have seen people hold a picnic on the bare prairie, where the nearest tree was miles away, and the only shade was that of a barbed wire fence. But everybody was happy. The success of a picnic depends upon the mental attitude, not on cool shade or purling streams. I remember seeing from the train window a party of young people carrying a boat and picnic baskets one hot day in July. A little farther on we passed a tiny lake set in a thick growth of tall grass. It was a very small lake indeed. I ran to the rear platform of the train and watched it as long as I could. I was so afraid some cow would come along and drink it dry before they got there. Not long ago, I made some investigations as to why boys and girls leave the farm, and I found in over half the cases the reason given was that life on the farm was, quote, too slow, too lonely, and no fun, 
Unquote. In country neighborhoods, family life means more than it does in the city. The members of a family are at each other's mercy, and so, if the father always has a grouch, and the mother is worried and tired and cross, small wonder that the children try to get away. In the city there is always the movie to go to, and congenial companionship down the street, and so we mourn the depopulation of our rural neighborhoods. We all know that the country is the best place in which to bring up children, that the freckle-faced boy with bare feet who hunts up the cows after school and has to keep the wood-box full and has to remember to shut the hen-house door is getting a far better education than the carefree city boy who has everything done for him. It is a good thing that boys leave the farm and go to the city. I mean, it is a good thing for the city. But it is hard on the farm. Of late years this question has become very serious and has caused alarm. Settlements which ten or fifteen years ago had many young people and a well-filled school and well-attended church, with the real owners living on the farms, have now become depopulated by farmers retiring to a nearby town and renters taking the place. Renters are very often poor and sometimes shiftless, no money to spend on anything but the real necessities, sometimes even too poor to send their children to school. One cause for this is that our whole attitude toward labor is wrong. We look upon labor as an uncomfortable experience, which, if we endure with patience, we may hope to outgrow and be able to get away from. We practically say, let us work now, so that by and by we may be able to live without working. Many a farmer and his wife have denied themselves everything for years, comforting themselves with the thought that when they have enough money they will retire. They will not take the time or the money to go to a concert, or a lecture, or a picnic, but tell themselves that when they retire they'll just go to everything. So just when they have everything in fine shape on the farm, when the lilacs are beginning to bloom and the raspberry bushes are bearing, they retire. Father's rheumatism is bad, and mother can't get help, so they rent the farm and retire. The people to whom the farm is rented do not care anything about the lilac or raspberry bushes. There is no money in them. All they care about is wheat. They have to pay the rent, and they want to make money. They have the wheat lust. So the lilacs bloom or not, as they feel disposed, and the cattle trample down the raspberry bushes, and the gate falls off the top hinge. Meanwhile the farmer and his wife move into town and buy a house. They get just a small house, for the wife says she's tired of working. Every morning at four-thirty o'clock they waken. They often thought about how nice it would be not to have to get up, but now, some way, it isn't nice. They can't sleep, everything is so quiet. Not a rooster crowing, nor a hen cackling. They get up and look out. All down the street the blinds are drawn. Everybody is asleep. And it all looks so blamed lazy. 
They get up, but there is nothing to do. The woman is not so badly off. A woman can always tease out linen and sew it up again, and she can always crochet. Give her a crochet needle and a spool of silk cotton, and she will keep out of mischief. But the man is not so easy to account for. He tries hard to get busy. He spades the garden as if he were looking for diamonds. He cleans the horse until the poor brute hates the sight of him. He piles his wood so carefully that the neighbors passing call out and ask him if he intends to varnish it. He mends everything that needs it, and is glad when he finds a picket off the fence. He tries to read the farmer's advocate. They brought in a year's number of them that they never had got time to read on the farm. Some way they have lost their charm. It seems so lazy in broad daylight for a grown man to sit down and read. He takes a walk downtown, and meets up with some idle men like himself. They sit on the sidewalk, and settle the government and the church and various things. "'Well, I must be gittin,' at last he declares. Then suddenly he remembers that he has nothing to do at home. Everything is done to a finish.' and a queer, detached feeling comes over him. He is no longer needed anywhere. Somebody is asking him to come in for a drink, and he goes. Why shouldn't he have a drink or anything else that he wants, he asks himself. He has worked hard. He'll take two. He'll go even further. He'll treat the crowd. When he finally goes home and sleeps it off, he finds he has spent a dollar and five. And he is repentant. That night a young lady calls, selling tickets for a concert, and his wife would have bought them, but he says, Go slow, Minnie, you can't buy everything. It's awful the way money goes in town. We'll see about this concert. Maybe we'll go, but we won't buy tickets. It might rain. They do not buy the tickets. Neither do they go. Minnie does not care much about going out. She has stayed in too long. But he continues to sit on the sidewalk, and he hears many things. Sometimes people have attributed to women the habit of gossiping, but the idle men, who sit on the sidewalks of the small towns, or tilt back in the yellow round-backed chairs on the hotel verandas, can blacken more characters to the hour than any other class of human beings. He hears all the putrid stories of the little town. They are turned over and discussed in all their obnoxious details. At first he is repelled by them, for he is a decent fellow, this man who put in the lilacs and the raspberry bushes back there on the farm. He objects to the remarks that are passed about the women who go by, and he says so, and he and one of the other men have words. The bartender hears it, and comes out and settles it by inviting everyone in to have one on the house. That brings back good fellowship, and everyone treats. He sees then that nobody meant any harm. It was all just in fun. A few glasses of white horse will keep a man from being too sensitive about things. So he laughs with the others at the indecent joke. This is life, town life. Now he is out in the world. So begins the degeneration of a man, 
and it is all based on the false attitude we have toward labor. His idea of labor was wrong while he was on the farm. He worked and did nothing else, until he forgot how to do everything else. Then he stopped working, and he was lost. Why any rational human being wants to retire to the city goes beyond me. I can understand the city man, worn with the noise, choked by the dust, frazzled with cares, retiring to the country, where he can heal his tired soul, pottering around his own garden, and watching green things grow. That seems reasonable and logical, but for a man who has known the delight of planting and reaping, to retire to a city or a small town, and hang around, doing nothing, is surely a retrograde step. The retired farmer is seldom interested in community matters. They usually vote against any by-law for improvement. Coal oil lamps were good enough on the farm. Why should a town have electric light? Why should a town spend money on cement sidewalks when they already have good dirt roads? He will not subscribe funds for the support of a gymnasium, hockey club, or public baths. He does not understand about the need of exercise. He always got too much. And he doesn't see any reason why the boys should not go to the river and swim. It is not that the farmer is selfish or mean above or below other men. It is because he has not learned team play or the community spirit. But it is coming. The farmer has been an independent fellow, able to get along without much help from anyone. He could always hire plenty of men, and there are machines for every need. So far as the farmer has been concerned, he could get along very well. It has not been so with the farmer's wife. More than any other woman, she has needed help, and less than any other woman has she got it. She has been left alone to live or die, sink or swim. Machines for helping the man on the farm are on the market in great numbers, and are bought eagerly, for the farmer reasons out the matter quite logically, and arrives at the conclusion that anything which will add to the productiveness of his farm is good buying. He can see the financial value of a cedar, or a roller, or a feed chopper. Now with a washing machine it is different. A washing machine can only wash clothes, and his wife has always been able to get the clothes washed some way. The farmer does not see any return for his ten dollars and a half, and so he passes up the machine. Besides this, his mother never used one and always manage to keep the clothes clean, too, and that settles it. The outside farm work has progressed wonderfully, but the indoor farm work is done in exactly the same way as it was twenty-five years ago, with the possible exception of the cream separator. Many a farmyard, with its binders, rakes, drills, rollers, gasoline engine, fanning mill, and steam plow, looks as if someone had been giving a machinery shower, but in the kitchen you will find the old washboard and dasher churn, which belong to the same era as the reaping hook and tallow candle. 
The women still carry the water in a pail from a pump outside, wash the dishes on the kitchen table, and carry the water out again in a pail, although out in the barn the water is pumped by a windmill or a gasoline engine. The outside work on the farm is done by horse, steam, or gasoline, but the indoor work is all done by woman power. And then, when the woman power gives out, as it does many times, under the strain of hard work and child-bearing, the whole neighborhood mourns and says, God's ways are past finding out. I remember once attending the funeral of a woman who had been doing the work for a family of six children and three hired men, and she had not even a baby carriage to make her work lighter. When the last baby was three days old, just in threshing time, she died. Suddenly, and without warning, the power went off, and she quit without notice. The bereaved husband was the most astonished man in the world. He had never known Jane to do a thing like that before, and he could not get over it. In threshing time, too. I don't know what could have happened to Jane. A strong young woman like her, he said over and over again. We all gathered at the house that afternoon and paid our respects to the deceased sister, and we were all very sorry for poor Ed. We said it was a terrible way for a poor man to be left. The chickens came close to the dining-room door and looked in inquisitively. They could not understand why she did not come out and feed them, and when they were driven away they retreated in evident bad humor, gossiping openly of the shiftless, lazy ways of folks they could mention if they wished to name names. The six little children, whom the neighbor women had dressed in their best clothes, sat dazed and silent, fascinated by the draped black coffin. But the baby, the tiny one who had just entered the race, gathered up the feeling of the meeting and cried incessantly in a room upstairs. It was a hard, rebellious cry, too, as if the little one realized that an injustice had been done. Just above the coffin hung an enlarged picture of Jane in her wedding dress, and it was a bright face that looked out at the world from the heavy gold frame, a sweet girlish face which seemed to ask a question with its eager eyes. And there below, in the black draped coffin was the answer, the same face, only a few years older, but tired, so inexpressibly tired, cold and silent, its light gone out, the power gone off. Jane had been given her answer, and upstairs Jane's baby cried its bitter, insistent cry. Just then the minister began to read the words of the funeral service. Inasmuch as it hath pleased the Lord. This happened in the fall of the year, and the next spring, just before the busy time came on, the bereaved husband dried his eyes, painted his buggy, and went out and married one of the neighbor's daughters, a good strong one, and so his house is still running on woman power. 
if men had to bear the pain and weariness of childbearing, in addition to the unending labors of housework and caring for children, for one year, at the end of that time there would be a perfect system of cooperation and labor-saving devices in operation, for men have not the genius for martyrdom that women have, and they know the value of cooperative labor. No man tries to do everything the way women do. No man aspires to making his own clothes, cleaning his own office, pressing his own suits, or even cleaning his own shoes. All these things he is quite willing to let people do for him, while he goes ahead and does his own work. Man's work is systematized well and leaves a man free to work in his own way. His days are not broken up by details. On the other hand, the home is the most haphazard institution we have. Everything is done there. I am speaking now of the homes in the country. In each of the homes there is a little bit of washing done, a little dressmaking, a little buttermaking, a little baking, a little ironing going on, and it is all by hand power, which is the most expensive power known. It is also being done largely by amateurs, and that adds to the amount of labor expended. Women have worked away at these endless tasks for generations, lovingly, unselfishly, doing their level best to do everything with no thought of themselves at all. When things get too many for them, and the burdens overpower them, they die quietly, and some other woman, young, strong, and fresh, takes their place, and the modest white slab in the graveyard says, Thy will be done, and everybody is apparently satisfied. The Lord is blamed for the whole thing. Now if men, with their good organizing ability and their love of comfort and their sense of their own importance, were set down to do the work that women have done all down the centuries, they would evolve a scheme something like this in each of the country neighborhoods. There would be a central station, municipally owned and operated, one large building fitted out with machinery that would be run by gasoline, electricity, or natural gas. This building would contain, in addition to the schoolrooms, a laundry room, a bake shop, a creamery, a dressmaking establishment, and perhaps a butcher shop. The consolidated school and the beef rings in the country district are already established facts, and have opened the way for this larger scheme of cooperation. In this manner the work would be done by experts, and in the cheapest way, leaving the women in the farm homes with time and strength to raise their children. This plan would solve the problem, too, of young people leaving the farm. Many of the young people would find occupation in the central station and become proficient in some branch of the work carried on there. They would find not only employment, but the companionship of people of their own age, the central station would become a social gathering place in the evenings for all the people of the district, and it is not too visionary to see in it a lecture hall, a moving picture machine, and a music room. Then the young people would be kept on the farms because their homes would be pleasanter places. No woman can bake, wash, scrub, 
cook meals and raise children, and still be happy. To do all these things would make an archangel irritable, and no home can be happy when the poor mother is too tired to smile. The children feel an atmosphere of gloom, and naturally get away from it as soon as they can. The overworked mother cannot make the home attractive. The things that can be left undone are left undone, and so the cushions on the lounge are dirty and torn, and the pictures hang crooked on the walls, and the hall lamp has had no oil in it for months. That does not matter, though, for the family live in the kitchen, and during the winter the other part of the house is of the same temperature as a well. Knowing that she is not keeping her house as it should be kept has taken the heart out of many a woman on the farm. But what can she do? The meals have to be cooked, the butter must be made. There are certain burdens which could be removed from the women on the farm. There is part of their work that could be done cheaper and better elsewhere, and the whole farm and all its people would reap the benefit. But right about here I think I hear from Brother Bones of Bonesville. Do you mean to say that we should pay for the washing, ironing, bread-making, sewing, he cries out? We never could afford it. And besides, what would the woman put in their time at if all that work was done for them? Brother Bones, we can always afford to pay for things in money rather than in human flesh and blood. That is the most exorbitant price the race can pay for anything, and we have been paying for farm work that way for a long time. If you doubt this statement... I can show you the receipts which have been chiseled in stone and marble in every graveyard. Sacred to the memory of Jane, beloved wife of Edward James, aged thirty-two years and six months. Who can estimate the worth of a mother to her family and the community? An old widower, who was reproved for marrying a very young girl for his third wife, exonerated himself from blame by saying, It would ruin any man to be always burying and burying. But Brother Bones is not yet satisfied, and he is sure the women will have nothing to do if such a scheme would be followed out, and he tells us that his mother always did these things herself and raised her family too. I can tell you, says Brother Bones, my mother knew something about rearing children. She raised seven and buried seven, and she never lay in bed for more than three days with any of them. Poor mother, she was a very smart woman. At least so I have been told. I don't remember her. That's just the point, Brother Bones. It is a great thing to have the memory of such a self-sacrificing mother but it would be a greater thing to have your mother live out her days. And then, too, we are thinking of the seven she buried. That seems like a wicked and unnecessary waste of young life, of which we should feel profoundly ashamed. Poor little people, who came into life tired and weak, fretfully complaining, burdened already with the cares of the world and its unending labor. Your old earth, they say, is very weary, 
Our young feet, they say, are very weak. And when the measles or whooping cough assails them, they have no strength to battle with it, and so they pass out. And again, the Lord is blamed. It is very desirable for the world that people should be born and brought up in the country with its honest, wholesome ways learned in the open, its habits of meditation, which have grown on the people as they have gone about their work in the quiet places. Thought currents in the country are strong and virile and flow freely. There is an honesty of purpose in the man who strikes out the long furrow and turns over every inch of the sod painstakingly and without pretense, for he knows that he cannot cheat nature. He will get back what he puts in. He will reap what he sows. For nature has no favorites and no shortcuts, nor can she be deceived, fooled, cajoled, or flattered. We need the unaffected honesty and sterling qualities which the country teaches her children in the hard but successful school of experience, to offset the flashy, supercilious lessons which the city teaches hers. For the city is a careless nurse and teacher, who thinks more of the cut of a coat than of the habit of mind, who feeds her children on colored candy and popcorn, despising the more wholesome porridge and milk a slatternly nurse who would rather buy perfume than soap, who allows her children to powder their necks instead of washing them, who decks them out in imitation lace collars and cheap jewelry with bows on their hair but holes in their stockings, who dazzles their eyes with bright lights and commercial signs and fills their ears with blatant music, until their eyes are too dull to see the pastel beauty of common things, and their ears are holden to the still, small voices of God, who lures her children on with many glittering promises of ease and wealth, which she never intends to keep, and all the time whispers to them that this is life. The good old country nurse is stern but kind, and gives her children hard lessons, which tax body and brain, but never fail to bring a great reward. She sends them on long journeys, facing the piercing winter winds, but rewards them when the journey is over, with rosy cheeks and contented mind, and an appetite that is worth going miles to see. And although she makes her children work long hours, until their muscles ache, she gives them for reward, sweet sleep, and pleasant dreams. And sometimes there are the sweet surprises along life's highway, the sudden song of birds or burst of sunshine, the glory of the sunrise and sunset, and the flash of bluebirds' wings across the road, and the smell of the good green earth. Happy is the child who learns earth's wisdom from the good old country nurse, who does better than she promises, and always makes her children mind. End of section 11